I feel like I'm one of the few people who was like, I'm in the pit, I'm on the stage, I'm doing the album cover, I'm documenting Dave Grohl writing a set list and walking to the stage with them. It's like, I've been in all those situations. Not anybody can walk into the room and talk to a famous person and keep, keep their cool. I think it takes a, a certain person. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. At one point in each of our lives, we were 13-year-old fans of somebody famous. We were mesmerized by their talent, wondered what their personal life was like, and imagined what it would be like to actually meet them someday. Today's guest is an accomplished photographer, but he's also an avid fan of music. He's forged a career path that's allowed him to not only meet and document many of his heroes, but to actually cultivate a close friendship with some of the biggest names in music from Springsteen to Vedder. Record labels today simply don't have the same budgets that they used to, and print media is on life support. But despite all of this, our guest has been able to successfully diversify and adapt to the changes in both technology and the evolving landscape of the photo industry itself. He's found a way to consistently shoot photos that feel like they could have been taken 60 years ago. They embody a timeless sense of style that evokes the use of light and shadow, impeccable framing, and the palpable emotion of 20th century masters like Irving Penn or Robert Frank. So how does one of the most accomplished music photographers in the business decide to leave New York City and set up shop in a small beach town in New Jersey? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with the man who's on a first name basis with countless artists from the boss to the foos. Today, photographer, gallery owner, harmonica enthusiast, and above all else, a rock and roll fan, Mr. Danny Clinch. Danny Clinch, thanks for sitting down, man. I appreciate you doing yeah, this. Yeah, man. I appreciate you coming to Asbury Park. It's beautiful. So, I mean, speaking of, so we are recording here at this stunning space you have called the Transparent Clinch Gallery in Asbury Park. It's set up, you know, both as a traditional photo gallery, as a store, but also as a, as a performance space. I mean, obviously, you have a love and a passion and a talent for photography. But talk to me about what music means to you. I mean, was this space really a way for you to kind of merge those two passions? Yeah, it's, uh, first of all, thanks again for coming out. I appreciate having you here. And Asbury Park is an incredible uh, community for music, art, you know, food, uh, you know, the, the ocean and everything. So I, I'm always a big proponent of uh, sharing information about Asbury Park, too. Um, but, you know, I spent a lot of time here growing up. As a kid, uh, I lived just south of here. We'd come to the Stone Pony or the Fast Lane or uh, the Asbury Lanes, things like that, to uh, to, to hear to hear some music. Uh, so I had done a couple of um, I did a couple of shows here in Asbury Park, some gallery shows. And the the space that we're in right now is owned by iStar, who owns also the Asbury Hotel and the Asbury Ocean Club, which is across the street. And they had this beautiful space with a, like 30-foot ceilings and one, a big atrium, lots of glass. 
And I ran into this woman who was a realtor for iStar because they were selling some apartments in town. And she said, you know, we got this space over here uh, at at the end of the Asbury Hotel. And uh, we want to fill it, fill it up with something. And uh, I told the folks over there that, you know, you have great photography and relationships with Springsteen and Fish and Pearl Jam and Foo Fighters. And, you know, you'd be a great fit there. And I was like, oh, cool. And I go, well, let's have a look at the space. And I was thinking in the back of my head, like, you know, I've done a lot of gallery shows and it's a lot of work. Yeah. I spend a lot of money yeah. and I don't always make the money back. In fact, usually you don't. And you're sitting on a bunch of images that are going to be in your storage. And so I wasn't quite sure about it. And I came in. I saw the space and I was like, wow, this is cool. My wife, Maria, and I came through. We saw the space and we were like, this is pretty dope. And I said, well, could you, uh, would you be able to pay for the framing and, you know, printing of all these images? And uh, they were like, yeah. And they said, we got a a budget for you. We're going to get you in here. Whatever you're looking to do, we're on board with it. And I was like, well, what about a drum kit and like some some amplifiers and some guitars? <laughs> They're like, sure. And so long, they just kept saying yes. And I was just like, how do I say no to this, yeah. you know, in Asbury Park? And our friend Tina, who now runs the gallery, uh, had a store um, on the boardwalk and her lease was running out. And this is all kind of serendipity just happening at the same time. Her lease was running out. We got this opportunity. Maria and I went over to Tina and said, you know, she's selling mid-century modern furniture and she was selling really cool art. And she had, we had gave her a Tupac photograph of mine for her shop to try and sell. And she just was like, just about to try to figure out what she was going to do uh, with her store. And we said, why don't you come over and run this pop-up gallery for a couple months? And this way you can figure out what you're going to do moving forward and, you know, bring your, bring your furniture in here and like bring your vibe and like you can run the gallery. She was like, that's a great idea. Let's do it. So we did. And all of a sudden, three months turned into three years and then four years and five years. And we started playing live music here with a lot of local musicians. Bands coming through the Stone Pony would come through here and do a set like Gary Clark Jr. and Nathaniel Rateliff, G Love, you know, all these cats coming in and hanging out and like picking up a guitar and playing music, uh, late night shows in here, um, just all sorts of goodness going on. We were doing really good um, sort of like charity events in here for uh, KYDS Kids, um, which is uh, a, a local charity in town. Um, the Mercy Center, um, that, that uh, uh, the Asbury Park Music Foundation, African American Foundation, all these things. Like, come on, our place is your place. Come in here, do fundraisers. Let's help you raise some money, and we have, and it's been it's been really exciting. So it's, part, um, it's gallery space, yeah. community space, store, yeah. performance space, yeah, like all the above. Yeah, yeah, and it's cool. People, you know, we bring their dogs in, or whatever, you know. No, it's <laughs> fantastic. It's cool that you mentioned vibe because yeah. it really it does have a vibe. And a lot of times you go into to galleries, and it's almost like it's meant to be the opposite of a vibe. It's supposed to be austere and white, right. and you kind of have this sense of like everything's precious. And I love how everything's laid out here. I mean, yeah. it really, yeah. it feels it feels like you'd want to hang out here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we always say like, you know, it's like a little community hub. You come in, it's not a white glove gallery. Don't touch things, you know. Come on in, look around, jump on the drum kit, have your kid bang on the drums. I mean, when we say that to people, it actually is one of the things they come in with their kids and the kids are like, you know, kind of looking around. They don't know what we go. Well, you know, make yourself at home. Come on in, like, go, go play the drums. And the kid looks at their parents. I can go play the drums. Like, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) They get on there and start banging around. It's, It's pretty fun. So, I mean, you've been taking pictures for quite some time and, you know, I'm curious about, the 90s, it seemed like a really interesting time for photography. 
I got the impression that music photography up until that point was largely taken by people that were either friends with the band or just big fans of music or at the very least shot almost exclusively music. And then it seemed like there was this kind of sea change in the mid-90s when the label started to kind of look to photographers that had a little bit more of a sophisticated fashion sensibility. And you started to see these photographers like maybe a crossover photographer like David LaChapelle, who would have these huge production, high concept, highly stylized shoots within the genre of music. And then you also have like somebody like a Metallica who would hire Richard Avedon to shoot their album package. It was like this weird kind of cross-pollination. Hmm. And it seems like those distinctions have, have largely blurred, you know, since then. But I'm curious, you know, coming up as a photographer, who did you look to for inspiration? I mean, was it more traditional music photographers like a Bob Gruen or a Jim Marshall, or did you find inspiration from portrait photographers or fashion? Like, mm, yeah, it's a great question. My original inspirations were through like Rolling Stone and Interview Magazine. So I was into Matthew Ralston and Herb Ritz and Annie Leibovitz, and I was a big fan of, um, I'm still a big fan of Annie's, and, and I was a big fan of her early work, which was very much the photograph as a document. And I also, at the time, was loving Irving Penn uh, and Avedon, and also people like Robert Frank and Danny Lyon. And these are all, you know, documentary photographers. And um, subsequently, Danny Lyon and Robert Frank uh, began making films as well, and they were just very much inspirational to me to go ahead and try and make some films, some documentaries. Because their, their, their films always seemed like that there weren't any rules, you know? and uh, Or maybe their rules were just like no talking heads. It's just a verite type thing, which I loved. And so, you know, I was looking at photographers like that along the way, and they were a big inspiration for me. And as a young photographer, I really felt like I wanted to be, um, you know, Irving Penn. You know, you're photographing fashion and and you're doing portraits of people and world in the small room type thing and you know presidents and and artists and poets and and frozen food you know <laughs> whatever the photographic problem that they were given they solved it in a very unique way and i truly wanted to be that and i felt like i have had those opportunities along the way and i've done a lot of that stuff and had a lot of assignments like that in various, you know, fashion and portraiture and, you know, photographing Obama and, uh, and that. So it's been, it's been a really great run for me, but I always tend to, tended to lean back into the music. And I look at things that are important to me. And as you work and you get really busy, which I did, is like, what work am I going to take, you know? And do I want to spend the time doing a fashion shoot or I do, do I want to be in the recording studio with Bruce Springsteen? You know, to yeah. me, there really was no question where I wanted to be. And as my opportunities increased, those were the decisions I was making. So I was like, I'm going to hang out with Pearl Jam, you know, in Seattle, uh, while they're recording or, uh, doing publicity for them or, you know, making a, a concert film with Pearl Jam or Foo Fighters or Dave Matthews band, you know, it seems funny that you mentioned, you know, turning down some fashion jobs for for types of jobs that you might find more, you know, inspiration from, you know, whether it's being with a band that you really like or whatever. You know, because looking around, you've obviously had the opportunity to shoot just an endless list of compelling people from, from Tupac to, to Tom Petty. And, you know, obviously that archive is incredibly valuable for, you know, prints and, and, and syndication. Mm -hmm. That's not really the case with 
a lot of fashion photographers. You know, I mean, you could be an extremely successful fashion photographer, but the revenue from a 2005 editorial shoot that you did isn't really the same. You know, that, that yeah. said, how important is your archive to where you've been able to take yourself? Like, would you be in a much different place if you had to survive strictly on creative fee and commission work as opposed to some of the other revenue streams like this store or prints or syndication or licensing? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, no one's really asked me that before. Uh, it's very observant of you. And I think it's, um, it's, a good, it's a good question. I think I have diversified myself in many ways. Um, and one of them is selling fine art prints, which has been great for me to supplement my income and be able to take the work that I want to take. Um, I've also become a partner in a music festival uh, called See Here Now, which is uh, here in Asbury Park. And we do 35,000 people right here on the beach, 100 yards from here. Um, and we had Stevie Nicks and Green Day this year as our headliners. We had Gary Clark Jr., My Morning Jacket was here, Cage the Elephant, uh, Backseat Lovers, just I could go on and on. Uh, Fletcher is, is a great lineup. And last year, the year before that, we had Pearl Jam and we had Patti Smith. And uh, so this is what we're bringing to the table and a lot of local bands here as well. Um, so that's been one of the things that has also taken my my time and my attention and is very exciting to be to diversify and to sort of exercise different muscles. Yeah. Uh, and the same here with the gallery, exercising, like being a marketing person, you know, marketing the gallery, um, creating uh, a brand here and marketing the brand and creating swag and all that stuff. And we partnered with a great company out of uh, Austin uh, called Preacher. And they're a, um, a, a small creative uh, boutique creative agency down there, and they helped us do a rebrand on the on the gallery, and they did a great job. And that stuff's really exciting to me. Um, I think you know if I didn't have the gallery, I would be out hustling more photography, and I turned down a lot of work um, because of the gallery, because of see here now, uh, and all the other obligations I have, family, and that. And so I would. I would be photographing more if I, if, if I didn't have the gallery here. And, uh, and my wife and I, the other day, we were like, geez, you know, we, we were living in New York city. Um, uh, we have a loft in hell's kitchen and we were, had this gallery here, which was a, a pop-up so to speak. And we were getting a great deal here and great support from ISAR. And all of a sudden it was uh, pandemic. And so nobody's coming into that. You see all the crew I have here. And yeah. it's like, you know, you know, or at least five full-time employees and others freelance coming through. No one was coming to the um, the loft to work, which was our live workspace. And uh, we have a home here in New Jersey near where both my wife and I's parents live. And we had the gallery. And so we were at a point where we were like, okay, we can't be covering all these things in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. And right? no one's hiring photographers And, and no one's either. hiring yeah. photographers. No productions are happening, anything like that. So um, we said if we could rent our loft uh, after 20 years of living there and working there um, during the pandemic for market value, uh, it would be a perfect time to move our business here because we had wanted to do that. We were on like a five-year plan, but this was forcing our hand. And um, we said, if we can do it, we'll do it because when am, when am I going to have the time to move 20 years worth of stuff yeah. down here 
and be a part of it and make sure things go smoothly, even though my wife was really running the show. <laughs> and do you have, is there any unintended consequences of that? I mean, are you comfortable with that move? Do you miss, yeah. do you miss the grind of, of shooting five days a week in New York and traveling and all that? Or do you, um, do you, you appreciate the, the kind of the, the free space? I, I, it, there's pros and cons, you know, it's like, I do appreciate um, those things. I appreciate, I love being down here a block from the ocean. You walk out the door and you go to the stone pony, you go to the, Asbury Lane's the Wonder Bar, you know, just, I could just go on and on the Saint, all these great little, little, little bars and music venues and great restaurants in town. And so it's great. And it's a very, it's a small community. So again, you know, after a while you're like, okay, same places, but you know, the music is, 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 uh, you know, there's a variety. So that's cool. Um, and I do miss being at the loft and someone saying like, reminding me like, oh, Dave Matthews bands at the garden tonight. And I'll yeah. be like, Oh cool. And then I just roll over there to the garden or yeah. whatever. Um, so I miss that. However, the upside is, like I said, being here near the ocean, I've got my, you know, my family around me. Um, and then when my wife and I go to New York city, we end up staying in a hotel room. And what we've realized is, you know, let's stay in the East village this time. Let's stay in the, you know, up near the beacon. Cause we're going to go see a beacon show. You could be a tourist yeah. in your own city. Yeah. And I actually see more of the city now than I ever did. And it's funny. You also managed to tell your friends like, Oh, we're coming up. Like, let's get dinner. You know? So there's that. So it's got its pros and cons and I, I love it all. I, you know, I'm also in a new chapter in my life, you know, it's like, uh, I'm at 58. And I've been doing this for a long time and I absolutely love it. And I would take any work that came my way, any and everything, I could find a silver lining in it and want to do the work, right? So it's a change for me to turn things down, to say no, to be like, oh man, I really want to be there, but I just, it's just going to be smarter for me to be here and I have other responsibilities and I, it's just, it's, it's, it's new, it's new for me and, and that's exciting too. Yeah. I was listening to Bruce on the Howard Stern the other day. and like I want to hear that interview. I oh heard man, it's a long it's, time coming, right? It, it really, it, it is. And it's really good because Howard Stern is just a great conversationalist. And, you know, he's not afraid to go anywhere, but he still has respect for the artist. And, and Bruce was just having a great time. And But my point was uh, that, you know, he was talking about how people come to him and they're like, oh man, I liked it. You know, he did like... I guess, oh, Tunnel of Love. He did the Tunnel of Love record and his old school friends were like, I liked it better when you're singing about girls and cars, you know? <laughs> like, why are you changing? Because I'm a grown like, ass man. Yeah. I just, why yeah. am I changing? I already did that, yeah. you know? And people that know that I know Bruce also asked me like, why didn't he do another Nebraska? And I was like, well, he did one, I yeah. guess. <laughs> so what's he going to do? And, uh, and so... I thought that was cool. It actually is, is that has stayed with me the last couple of days. Cause I, you know, the thing just came out a couple of days ago that has stuck with me most. He was like, why would, why wouldn't I want to change? Yeah. You know, why, why would I want to do the same thing? You know? That's, that's fascinating. And, uh, and, and, you know, as an artist, I thought, wow, you know, I, I feel you. So, you know, I used to know a couple of the photo assistants that you used to work with back in the day. And I know you are notorious for shooting a lot of different cameras. I remember like assistants having to clean six six five negatives on the side <laughs> of the road. And, you know, it's very, uh, it's Who like, threw me under the bus? Uh, it's Christian Lantry, I oh, think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh wow, that's Back cool. In the day. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the point being, it, it seemed like. You know, in the 90s, there wasn't that many technical tools that a photographer could really use to differentiate their style. Maybe you had the camera that you used, the film stock, how you process that stock, 
lighting and printing. That was pretty much it. It's a Um, lot of options. It's a lot of options. But now, you know, with Photoshop, you have unlimited options, like for manipulation Mm -hmm. after the fact. And Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering, has that affected your photography at all? Do you find that that unlimited amount of options is is overwhelming? Or have you kind of leaned into that? Do you you use that a lot in your workflow? Well, I, I... First, I'll I'll address the lot of different cameras uh, situation, which is that was kind of like that's funny. I've never thought of it this way, but in a way, that was my Photoshop. In a way, you know, where I was like, I had all these different cameras. I had um, my my Nikon's, my old Nikon's, FE, FE two, whatever, um, and then I had my Hasselblad. I had my old Polaroid cameras with you know six six five film. Um, once I bought a Konica Instapress, I never went back to the Polaroid cameras, but it, that is a Polaroid, uh, it takes Polaroid film. And, um, there's a great camera, my wide Alux, I started using a, like a little half frame and doing little stories. It's all storytelling, right? So you're trying to figure out a way to tell a story. And then I had this wide Alux camera and these plastic cameras where I would double expose a lot of double exposure and shoot right into the sun and get these weird flares and just have a good time with it. And what that afforded me was a couple of things. One is when I did a photo shoot for album packaging for someone, for example, the art directors were thrilled. They were like, wow, we have all sorts of stuff here. We've got a very simple portrait of someone on a simple background where they're fully engaged. They look like a rock star, whatever that might be. And then we have these like flary, you know, moody type images. We got these double exposures. I, I used to, I like to shoot details really close. And then I like to step way back and have the subject be really small in the frame and things like that. So this was all a way of giving them options, you know, and sometimes they didn't even have the name of the record yet, you know, and like, you know, they're, oh, they're, they're doing the record, but we have to do the shoot now. And like, I'm not sure it's going to be either called this, that, or the other thing, you know, and like, you're trying to like, listen to the music, maybe feel the vibe of it, see what type of person it is and where and where and how they want to be photographed and, and bring those things to the table. So it left a lot of options. And, and the early art directors that I worked with, um, I, I just recall starting to work with um, Def Jam and the drawing board, which was um, Steve Carr and Say Adams, who were the art directors there. And Say came from the streets of you know graffiti and was friends with Basquiat and um, Keith Haring and that. And and Steve was also a great guy and is now a filmmaker. And um, they would in the beginning they were like they would come to the shoots with me and we would have our conversations. We'd talk about you know, what they were looking for and how we could collaborate and, you know, different ideas, tossing ideas around. And after a while, they're just like, yeah, just send Danny out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, we're sure he's going to come back with something we can, we will love and we can use. I mean, there was really something about like each of those different cameras that you mentioned, they kind of had their own personality that affected the workflow of the the work that you would get. I mean, even, and I know you and I both grew up on film and I want to get into kind of film versus digital in a second, but there's definitely an, an element of, Growing up on film, you had this mindset of every time I push this button, it's going to cost a dollar, roughly, you know? And then what are you trying to say? And it really kind of informs the way you approach a situation as mm. opposed to just being able to shoot everything and, and, and edit later. I mean, yeah. is that, you, you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's rough. I mean, I think um, I would never hold back on shooting as much film as I could, but this digital thing is crazy. I mean, literally, I've done jobs where... I just, the editing took me longer than actually shooting the job. You still have to parse all that information, even though you can capture it, you know. Unbelievable. I did something recently and I couldn't believe it. I literally, it took me like three days to get through a two-day shoot. 
<laughs> I'm serious. I was like, I need to take a break. I, I don't know what it is. You just get in this zone and you're just like, I want to make sure nobody blinks. And I got all the, you know, and I, cover the, yeah. you know, whatever it is, but it is something to consider. And it is something that is, uh, is stressful. And, um, you know, I think when you become my age and you've gotten all these opportunities, you know, you, you sort of, hopefully you know how to get to the good stuff quicker and therefore you can eliminate some of the, the chaff er, yeah. early on. Well, I mean, there's definitely arguments to be made for for both the film versus digital. I mean, I think a like a medium format negative is just such a beautiful store of information, you know. But on the flip side, I feel like that, to a degree, there's a little bit of a over sentimentality to film to the degree that, like, I used to shoot a lot of high speed print color film, like on location in low light situations, and it looked like shit. Like it was mm-hmm. like grainy and clumpy, like in not a good way, you know. Yeah. And you know any. $500 plus camera now, you could crank it to 6,400 ISO and your file looks fantastic, yep. you know? And so, you know, that said, you see a lot of these kids today and they're shooting 35 millimeter, millimeter film, but it's a Yashica from the 80s with a $100 lens. I'm like, what advantage are you really trying to get out of that? You know, and that's not even addressing the cost or yeah. the environmental impact for, for yeah. all that chemistry. You know, I mean, yeah. what, are, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm pro film. So I, you know, I love seeing people shoot film and, um, I think it is a whole different mindset. It's like, you know, playing a record. It's like getting vinyl Yeah. and I appreciate it. It is funny to see, you know, people shooting, like you said, like higher speed film and it's all super grainy and like, you know, people, I mean, hell there's, you know, there's apps that makes your, you look like you have semi-exposed film, you know, on the edges with the red and all that sort of stuff. And it's fun. I mean, I I appreciate it, but you know, I think to each his own, you know, everybody's got their way of, of how they, how they see the world and you have a point of view and you, 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 you have the right to, to put it out there. What about the delayed gratification of getting film three days later instead of immediately? Yeah. Does that affect you personally as the way you shoot? Uh, you know, these days, to be perfectly honest, you know, I shoot a decent amount of digital, you know, I, I kind of, I've kind of, people demand it and yeah. in, in my, in my brain, like, I'm not going to fight it. You know, I just, I, I, I want to see it too. Uh, I want to see, and I want to make sure, like I, I, I semi recently made the mistake of, I, I was photographing this band and I was like, I knew I wasn't going to have a lot of time. All I wanted to do for them and for their management and for me, I was like, get as much stuff as I could for them. There's many different situations and as many different looks. And I was cranking and I was just like, you know, I know the guys, I know they they trust me. I'm going to just shoot, shoot, shoot. And at the end of the day, like I didn't really share the, the fun. I didn't say like, Oh yeah, so this is looking great here. You know, this is what it's looking like, whatever. And the, the problem with not sharing it is, um, and it all depends on who you are and what type of photographer you are. But I like people to be happy. I like to collaborate with people. I like to, I like them to be happy. I like to make sure that I'm on the right track. And, you know, if somebody could scrap a whole, you know, a whole shot, a whole session, a whole situation, which is so valuable, you've spent all this time, you set up the light, I'm feeling good about it. I don't realize it. Like someone's like, oh, dude, I hate when I stand that way. You know, that's all one guy has to say. And, and it's, sh- it's out, yeah. you know? I like, you mean I could have just turned your shoulders this way and we'd be good, you know? And, and it happened. So, so that's my argument for digital and, and being tethered and letting people see what's going on. You don't want to overshow them, but you know, back in the day, it was that 
Konica Polaroid camera. You'd see and one Polaroid. You'd see one Polaroid, and I'll tell you what, those Polaroids always looked classic. Yeah. You know, you pull that Polaroid. Sometimes better, you could never replicate yeah. it, unfortunately. And you're like, yeah. here you go. And you'd be like, oh, this looks great, you know? And then you have a conversation, and they're like, what if I did this? Or I don't like the way I'm standing, so they can change it. And still, you got to afford somebody that opportunity to say that. You know, so that was a that was a, a big learning experience for me. I'm not, I mean, I'm still learning, you know, all the time. And uh, anybody that says they're not, you know, is, is, is lying. I mean, well, that's the biggest irony of, of digital photography is that, yeah, I mean, sure, you get happy accidents sometimes on film. But for a trained photographer who's been around a long, as long as you have, you could replicate any look on digital if you know what yeah, you're doing. You sure. know, whether it's flare, grain, totally. whatever. You yeah. know, but I think it's the it's the inexperience that kind of have to lean into those happy accidents and, and yeah. shoot just on film. Yeah, but you know, if you're doing double exposures and you're looking for weird flares and, and that kind of stuff, um, certainly those cameras are really, really beautiful. I mean, you you can't really replicate a film flare on a digital camera because it just doesn't hold it in the highlights and it just gets weird. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, so it seems like, you know, we live, we live in a really amazing time for people who love taking photos, which isn't necessarily the same as an amazing time for a professional photographer, you know, um, but there used to be a barrier of entry to being a photographer. I mean, just the fact that you knew how to use a light meter or load an RZ back, it like puts you in a, immediately in a different echelon than a lot of other photographers, you know? And, and most of those technological barriers have kind of since been erased. But it seems like with what you do, with anyone who shoots celebrity or musicians, there's a little bit of a firewall that insulates you from other photographers, let's say maybe a landscape photographer, an action sports photographer, because so much of what you do is intricately involved with the notion of access and personality and being able to kind of shepherd these egos and the experience that you have, like, you know, getting those emotions out of mm -hmm. them. Is that a fair statement? I mean, do you think that's true? Yeah, I think that um, not anybody can walk into the room and talk to a famous person and uh, keep their keep their cool you know, and 
some people are successful doing it when they can't keep their cool <laughs> or however they choose to act. But um, I think it takes a, a certain person. And, you know, the, the people around these people, of course, the people themselves, but, you know, people around them, are you know, understand someone who, you know, is going to be able to get the job done and make people feel comfortable. And, um, you know, I always say that a lot of the musicians that I work with, you know, they they want to be documented. You know, like if they're doing something special, uh, you know, maybe they're playing it. Wrigley Field or they're recording a record and they feel really good about it or they're collaborating with someone, they they want those moments documented. So, but who are they going to allow in the room, you know, that they can trust, you know, won't get in the way, won't make their presence, you know, annoying. And I try to be that person, you know. Yeah. And those, um, I mean, th- those traits in your experience doing that are something that's a very different skill set than something that could maybe be altered with technology, but like being able to shoot a beautiful landscape or being able right. to shoot, you know, surf photography in the water, yeah. which is, you know, basically not a profession anymore, you know? So yeah. it's not a profession because, uh, just because the bottom has fallen out of the market. It was a race to the bottom to, to try and make any money out of it. I mean, there's yeah. still, the technology is better than ever. And, the, and the footage that you see from the water is more spectacular than ever, but you know, being able to make a living out of it is, it's almost not a thing anymore. Wow. You know, you know it's all, the guy's all shooting digital, but I mean, you think of like some of like the, you know, traditional, really well-known, you know, water photographers are out there shooting, like you have 36 frames and then you paddle into the beach, you know, it's pretty, it's impressive. Yeah. And they're still doing it? No. No, 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 no. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. Uh, I mean, it's like, it's like shooting a, a concert, you know, same thing. Why would you want to reload and reload and reload when you can just rapid fire it off. And I feel like there's to a certain extent, and I don't, I don't know that I ever really thought I'd say this, but you know, it's, it could be that way, you know, in the, in the concert photography, you know, being in the pit, there's, you know, there's a lot of different type of photographers. And I, I think that, you know, there are certain photographers that they're only doing album covers or publicity shoots, or they're having time with the artists and stuff, you know, they're either doing that or they're in the pit, you know, shooting a show but those people shooting the show in the pit are not the same people who are doing the album covers and things like that. Yeah. I feel like I'm one of the few people who was like, I'm in the pit, I'm on the stage, yeah. I'm doing the album cover, I'm documenting Dave Grohl writing a set list and walking to the stage with them. It's like, I've, I've been in all those situations. And I would say, you know, even the folks now that are out on the road um, doing, you know, really doing great work who are locking into a certain artist, most of them are work for hire, you know, and they're getting paid by the artists or the manager. And then they just walk away and they don't have any ownership of the photographs and stuff. This yeah. is a mistake. I, which, think. I mean, which comes back to yeah. the conversation we had at the beginning of, I, of being able to have this revenue stream and this yeah. archive of, of, yeah. of proper, right. intellectual exactly. property. Yeah. It, it's just, I just think it's unfair because you're taking an artist the photographer and you're, you're taking away their rights and you know, they're hopefully you have them on your team cause they're good at what they do yeah. and they're making great photographs of your artist. And look, I think that they're in a position to call the shots, but let's be fair and at least share the, re- share the revenue or say, look, you can have X amount of images over the years um, that we are going to guarantee that we're going to approve. And, you know, over the time, they approve these images so that you can put them in your book that you're going to make. You can put them in a gallery show, make some print sales, things like that. And I feel like I feel like that, that would be fair. Um, it's not happening, really, yeah. for the most part. It's only very few and far between are out there. 
getting those opportunities. Well, it's funny. It seems like, I mean, not, not even just for artists and musicians, but it seems like the entire world's relationship with the camera has changed dramatically over mm-hmm. the course of the last mm-hmm. 10 years. Everyone has one in their pocket. Everyone mm-hmm. has one on their phone. Everyone is very learned and comfortable performing in front of the camera, posting themselves on social media. I mean, yeah. it's just a very di- different atmosphere. I mean, have you noticed a change in your subjects? Has it become easier sometimes? Like walking in cold with somebody, they're just a little bit more trained and sophisticated on, on how to act in front of you? Or have you noticed yeah, a difference? I think it depends on the person, really. But, you know, if I, I feel you. I, I think that people are used to being photographed more than ever. Um, you know, I just feel grateful that I that I was ahead of that whole curve for the most part. And, you know, I think about, you know, Jim Marshall and Henry Diltz, uh, you know, Bob Gruen, those guys who, you know, in a sense, they were, you know, Henry Diltz was a musician. He was hanging out with his friends. I mean, that was really the epitome of hanging with your friends and photographing. Only his friends were Jackson Brown and David Crosby and Mama Cass and, you know, people like that. And Neil Young. I mean, you know, you see those photos and you're like, you could, you could. If it wasn't Neil Young, you know, standing on his farm with his dog, it could have been like Henry's cousin or whatever, you know, just yeah. his friend. And that stuff is is really is really interesting to me. And I I was a, I had a part of that, you know. Bob Gruen was you know friends with people, you know, he's friends with John Lennon, and you know John knew that you know he like loved his photographs, but he also knew he could trust him, and uh, and that sort of thing. So it's all. It has changed quite a bit, you know, now that everyone's got a camera. And it's interesting for me to see when, you know, no photographers are left, are let back somewhere. Like I might be in a situation where I know like, oh, they're not letting anybody back there to take any photos. And then like the tour manager gets a photo of like this amazing group of people and it's just an iPhone photo. Yeah. And it's like, and people tend to be okay with that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'm just like, wow. Okay. Well, talk to me about, okay, so... I, I know we're here in Asbury Park. We can't not talk about Bruce Springsteen for a second. You have shot so many amazing, iconic photos of him. But you're also, that's your bud. You guys are personal friends, your your pals. Does that make it easier to get evocative photos of him? I mean, how how important is it from your perspective to have a relationship with someone in order to get a good, intimate photo? Well, I think... I think as a photographer, you know, like I said earlier, I've grown in a way that, like, I know how to get to a good photograph a lot faster than I used to. I used to really have to search hard and now I can really feel it and see it. And, and having a relationship with someone, I think it's, I'm a lot more comfortable. So I would say yes, because I'm a lot more comfortable asking Bruce to like, you know, well, why don't you come over here or lean in this way or like put your foot up that way? Or, you know, I'm just shooting from the back. Just trust me. It's going to be cool. Or I'm shooting through this window or, you know, whatever it might be. And it's funny. I, I, I feel like the last couple of shoots with, with that I did with Bruce, like he literally after, after when I was like, man, this could be our best shoot. This could be our best one yet. These photos are really cool. And sure enough, like when we did this last shoot, and there's a couple of like really incredible images. The cover is super cool. Uh, you know, only the strong survive. But there's a lot of others that they haven't used yet that I know they'll use that are just really, really cool. And, and, and again, he was just like, this could be the best shoot we did. And I, so I'm so stoked for him to hear that. And, and he's also, uh, he likes photography and has an interest in photography. And he, he also is a guy that like, he understands the power of photography and he understands what works really well. He also is a guy that will like choose one of those weird double exposure, uh, motion, 
type photographs that I took with a plastic camera, you yeah. know, or something that's, you know, like I, the first shoot I did with him for an album uh, packaging was The Rising. And when I saw the packaging, you know, I had, I had heard him making the record and, but I hadn't heard, heard, I hadn't gotten an advance of the record, so to speak. I was down um, in Georgia at Southern Tracks and I would get, you know, a half hour here, half hour there. And then we like, I had a whole like kind of like couple hours one evening to do some photos with him. And I was just doing what I normally do. Wide Alux, Polaroid camera, motion, wide stuff, details of hands, like reflections and puddles, like just visual storytelling, you know? And he chose this image that is, like, I remember exactly what I was doing. It was some cool architecture behind him, like a brick wall and like some, some, uh, interesting, uh, pole or something. And, um, column. And I was just like on a tripod and I was just like, I'm just going to slow the shutter speed around and you should just kind of move around and we'll see if we get something interesting. And, uh, and we did, and it was on Polaroid and I saw it and I was like, oh, this one's pretty cool. And when, uh, the album came out, it was that photo. It was like, like a motiony yeah. photograph of Bruce. And then when, first of all, I was like, wow, that well, do you is, think, do you think his, his choice of making an album cover with that photo is a product of the luxury of just having such a long career where he, people know what Bruce Springsteen looks like. You sure. know, they don't have to sell. True. That's uh, in the same way the new artist. And maybe yeah. he's, he's, he's bored. He's I bored think that's with, part with of it. Guy I think against the wall. Yeah. I know? think that's part of it. He can do whatever he wants. And he even said that on that Howard Stern where he's like, you know, I have a big fan base that love pretty much appreciate, you know, what I, what I love and put out there. Uh, and trust me. And, um, so that could be the case, but then also I was going to say, and then you listen to the record and the whole record is basically about nine 11, you know, and there's like almost a ghostly quality. There is a ghostly quality to the image. And I'm sure that he, that's why he chose it. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was interesting. Is there, is there a downside to shooting somebody that you're so familiar with and that you're friends with in terms of maybe you have some tricks or some devices that you might employ to kind of get people to react or stand or pose a certain mm. way. And then if you're shooting with someone that like already knows those tricks, yeah. it's like a magician doing the rack <laughs> for the second time. I mean, is there, is there a downside to that? I don't know. I, I, I you know, maybe, you know, I, I think, I think there's a comfortability there. You, you can almost make fun of each other uh, while you're doing it, which, which look, the biggest goal here for, for, for me uh, as I'm um, photographing people who are musicians, they're not models. They're not actors. Some of them love to be photographed and some of them hate it, you know, but they don't hate spending the afternoon with me. They might, they might hate having their photo taken and not like the whole idea of it, but they don't hate hanging out with me for an afternoon because we crank some good tunes and I hopefully get some good photos of them. So I, I say it that way in the sense, because there's a lot of bands that I work with that, that um, probably, you know, it's not their favorite thing to do is sit for a photo shoot necessarily but i get great stuff of them and, yeah. and they appreciate that and and also i come prepared and i don't waste people's time you know it's like i'm not i'm not standing around debating the lighting while someone's standing there ready to be photographed yeah. you know you know and that, and that speaks to what we were talking about before you know that your personality and what you bring to the table and your you know quickness and, and experience that's not something that's going to be replicated with a development and technology you know yeah like True. Like somebody who shoots maybe action sports or shoots right. in the pit or shoots surf photography, you yeah. know? So, I mean, I think that's, that's what I was getting at. It seems like because of what you do, there's a little bit of a firewall that kind of keeps the industry from eroding like it has mm -hmm. for a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, so 
sitting here and looking at all these pictures on the wall, uh, the one thing that that strikes me is so interesting is that, you know, unlike somebody who specializes just shooting studio photography, so many of these photos are just these amazing moments that that were captured and preserved. But just as importantly, they're moments that you got to experience. And, you know, whether that's walking through Queensbridge projects with Nas back in the day or being on stage with Pearl Jam or backstage with the Foos. Uh, is, there, is there a moment that comes to mind in your career where maybe you got a picture that you were happy with, but the experience itself was really something special and, and transformative to you personally? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of those things. I mean, you know, the life experiences that I've gotten through photography and filmmaking have just been incredible. I mean, uh, standing in the hallway with Johnny Cash, he's about to hit the stage. I can hear his hype man out there, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the man in black, you know? Yeah. I mean, That's standing with the BC boys and they're doing like a little little huddle before they go on and they're like, you know, they're sarcastically looking as serious as as ever, you know? Because the funny thing is, is they were having such a great time, but they were serious about what they were doing. They were serious about having a good time doing it too, yeah. you know? So that, that, that kind of thing, um, being on stage with the Foo Fighters or Pearl Jam or, you know, at Wrigley Field and getting to see, you know, stand on the stage, feel the audience, like just, just blowing up around you, you know, the sound coming up, um, things like that, being able to, you know, um, there's, I don't know if this photo is up. Oh, this, there's a photo up there of being on the tour bus with Willie Nelson. Why Willie, Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard and, and another friend are smoking weed and betting a hundred and, you know, thousands of dollars a hand on, you know, on poker. <laughs> I mean, who gets to do that? Honestly. Fantastic. I mean, and I always, I always thank uh, Annie, Willie's wife, because I was outside the, the bus and she goes, the boys are in there playing poker. And I was like, oh, and she was like, come on. <laughs> she was like, this needs to be captured. And you know what? They didn't even see me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And of course, I, I wasn't going to go in there. It's a perfect example. I'm not going to go in there and try and say hello. You know, I'm yeah. just going to be like, whoa, just a fly on the wall here. Just grabbing these moments. Oh, my God. Um, just so, incredible. I mean, speaking of, so you, you've shot a lot with the Foo Fighters over the years. Mm -hmm. And I know you were out at the memorial concert for Taylor at the forum a couple yeah. weeks ago. Was there one moment during that show that really drove home, like, how, why that show was so special and why you made a point to go out there for it? Well, um, I went to London as well okay. for those shows and Dave asked me to come out. He knew it would be special. The band knew it would be special and wanted it documented. And um, I mean, the whole thing was special. It's just like seeing all those different drummers sitting in with the band. Uh, but the moment that was really, was really emotional for all of us was I needed to get a photograph of them in London, you know, as they had arrived there, which was only like two or three days into the trip. And, um, and I got a photograph of them standing out in the street and, you know, Taylor wasn't in it, you know? And so it was, it was really, uh, just a very poignant moment and you can see it in their faces and it'll never be the same. It'll never be the same. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's just the sad reality of it. And, uh, and everybody in London, there was a celebratory feel of like, let's celebrate his life. This is great. You know, this is why, you know, he would want us to be doing this. And the, 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 there was talk and laughter and stories and, and that. And I think when it got back to Los Angeles, 
there was a lot of the same, but I think there was also they realized, oh wow, this is this is the real send off right real. here. They're in their in their they're in their hometown. They're, they're in their not hometown, on their way show. And this thing yeah. is gonna this this is gonna end, and the reality is gonna set in that you know, he's definitely not coming back. And unfortunately, you know, we've been been reminded over and over again like how fragile life is, and how you know nothing's guaranteed, and yeah. you you know you need to love your friends and enjoy their company while they're here, and and just. Not fret about the things. I'm, I'm guilty of it. I, I fret about things that I shouldn't be fretting about. And the reality is, is that I'm here. I've, and as Willie would say, every day above ground is a good day. <laughs> well, you know, we've we've talked about some of the highlights of your careers and some of these amazing stories shooting these pictures. Have you had any major missteps in your career? Is there any situation that you've walked into that you just weren't really prepared or didn't anticipate what you were getting yourself into or kind of caught off guard? Uh, yeah, there was um, this moment where I was with the Malloy brothers who was doing a, a Metallica video called St. Anger. And they were filming in um, uh, in, in prison, right? It was in, um, um, it was in um, San Quentin. How did I forget that? <laughs> uh, I just I have the the photograph in my in my in my brain, but uh, and and we went in there and we were all about to go into the prison. Uh, you know, the band was there. I was hired as a uh, second unit cinematographer, and I was shooting a lot of film, like my old Bolex camera, and it was I was super excited about it. I had some of my other still cameras with me. So the warden comes out to greet the band and the crew. And he's like, oh, this is what's going to happen. He's like, uh, you know, no running. You know, you got, you can't wear jeans or you can't wear khakis. I forget what it was because the population is wearing that. And um, you can't run. And I need you guys all to sign this document. And, and he's like, okay, what's the document? And he's like, well, basically the document says that if you are taken hostage, we are not going to guarantee that we will negotiate for your release. Because <laughs> all these people are in prison for life, yeah, basically, or for murder and yeah. <laughs> nothing to lose. And we were all like, oh, okay. And I kind of looked around and like, I just recall James Hetfield, like, yeah, give me that pen, you know, like he signs his name. And we were all like, okay, I guess if he doesn't care, we, you know, <laughs> we all signed our name and went in and it was like, it was pretty crazy. And at one point I left one of my lenses somewhere and I came back for it, you know, and these guys are all playing checkers, you know, and this little thing. And they, they look at me like, you forget something? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, we know you did. <laughs> and they're like, reach under the table. And they're like, yeah, we got your back. Don't That's worry. Great. I was like, okay. <laughs> um, any major mistakes? Do you have like the, the, the trademark forgot my film, messed up a um, shoot, something like that? You know what? I was photographing, um, I remember... I'm trying to think the thing that just immediately jumps out to me is I was photographing um and this was back in the day when I was sneaking my camera into shows uh and you know you really were you know really weren't getting a second chance you sneak in you wake your way you make your way up to the front you've you've stuffed your cameras down your pants you've given film to your friends yeah. you get in you just like you really you know it sounds simple but you know you, back in the day it was hard and to get down into the front and I was photographing um in excess same thing happened to me at a Madonna show. Same thing. Snuck in, whatever. Get in there. I'm shooting, 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 shooting. I'm like, You're shouldn't. Like, that's 40 frames. That's, <laughs> yeah. Shouldn't there, shouldn't I have run out of film, you know? And then you yeah. realize the there's film no didn't catch oh. or there's no film. You, oh, what the fuck? I didn't load this thing. <laughs> that's, that happened to me. Um, but, you know, sometimes. Uh, it wasn't meant to be. Yeah. 
Cool. Well, you know, we always like to end this podcast by giving the guests an opportunity to plug something that they feel isn't really getting enough attention, whether it's like a book or a movie or an artist, a cause, uh, a band. Is there is there something you want to give some shine to that people should know about? Um, you know, I'm going to take the opportunity to say that there is an African-American foundation here in Asbury Park. And uh, Springwood Avenue in Asbury Park used to be famous for having like great jazz artists come through, um, legendary jazz artists come through. And there was like a bunch of really great clubs there. And um, there's one called the Turf Club. And uh, it was the, it's the last one standing. And they've been raising money and awareness to rebuild it. And uh, they've had some success with it. But, you know, it's like anything. It's really it's a rough it's a rough road. But um, you can find them on Instagram. It's the Asbury Park African-American Music Foundation. Amazing. Um, and is there anything else personally you want to plug before you get you book projects? And oh, yeah. Up? You know, um, well, I was excited to see that the, the film I made on Shannon Hoon called All I Can Say uh, with um, my co-directors, uh, Taryn Gould, Colleen Hennessy, and Shannon himself, because he filmed it all himself, is getting a lot of, uh, a lot of play on, on United Airlines. And like, you know, it's like they, they got whoever our, you know, distributor yeah. is, got it on the airline. And my friends on a daily, I'm getting like little texts, like with a screenshot of the film and like, oh, I saw the film. And like, there's a lot of people I know who, who know me and want to support me and they just haven't had a chance to see the film. And then they're on a flight and they're like, I'm Amazing. on a flight for three hours. I'm going to watch yeah. this thing, you know? And it's really, it's a very important film. Um, it's not, the film isn't about Blind Melon necessarily. It's about Shannon and it's about life struggles. It's about uh, addiction. It's about mental health. And uh, and it's about self-documentation before cell phones, right? Yeah. And the fact that here's this guy who was like a real true artist and musician, and he, but he had enough uh, uh, chutzpah to to charge the batteries to keep track of all the tapes and uh and we made the whole film out of his own footage uh which is which is incredible and the other thing i'm working on which um isn't really ready to see yet but i'm really excited about is a friend of mine uh named jim watt who lives here in asbury park he's a he's an architect and he's an artist and um well, he came up with this idea. He was doing, during the, during the pandemic, he was doing this thing called Jazz at the Shop. And he had a, a, a studio, an art studio here in town. And he would uh, throw out a bunch of chairs um, and it, everything was social distanced. Everybody had to wear masks. But he was, he'd call a friend of his, Antoine Dry, to, to come out with a couple of jazz musicians and play in the parking lot. And we, we'd get like, you know, maybe like 60, 70 people and everybody paid 25 bucks. All the money went to the musicians. They weren't making any money. Nobody was working. You know, this is in the heart of the pandemic. And we'd all go out, we'd mask up, bring our own booze or whatever. <laughs> and, and so out of that, he came to me one day and he said, I got this idea. I want to make some paintings. It's going to do these Japanese ink wash paintings. We're going to call it a thousand watts. And he's like, I'm going to paint a thousand paintings. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a 4K camera that shoots down on my, my art while I'm making it. And then Antoine's going to come with some, some friends and play music. And while I'm painting and we're projecting it onto the screen, they're going to be playing music. And I'm going to be inspired by their music, and they're going to be inspired by my paintings. And then if you want to film it, like it'll be a really nice little uh, abstract film project. And I was like, yes, I want to do it. That's amazing. That and great. we're in a fine cut of the film, 
and it's called a thousand watts. What's the what's the um, running length for something like that? It's um, just under fifteen minutes, so it's fourteen minutes and change. So it's really it's very cool. It's very abstract. It's got an incredible soundtrack. It's visually super stimulating and really really cool. And when you see how it's put together and how the you're seeing the ink bleed, it's like something that like you could just stare at for hours. Wow. You know, and right when you feel like it might be, at least in my opinion, right when you feel like, like, oh, could this be getting too long? Oh, it's over. You know? <laughs> yeah, 15 minutes yeah. is digestible. We're like, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, we had a screening recently with our friends. You know, when you do a project like that, if it's just you and someone else and you're just watching it all the time, you go, yeah, this is great. Isn't it great? Yeah. But then when you go in a room with a bunch of people that you admire their opinion and you're sitting there, you go like, oh, well, that's not. That's actually not great. Yeah. yeah. Now that everybody's here, you're like looking around. You know? <laughs> and we felt great about it. We were like, this feels great. And everybody was like, wow. So we're about to, you know, we're trying to figure out the um, the route to some film festivals and maybe hopefully get someone of note to come on board and, and be an EP of some sort to to help us, you know, get it out there. It always helps. Cool. Yeah, it's called 1,000 Watts. 1,000 Watts. Yeah. Cool. Well, Danny, I really appreciate you taking time out. Um, If anyone happens to be in Asbury Park, this is a must, a must see. Um, Yes. I imagine you have some amazing programming, but even if there's no bands playing, just come check out the art. Um, This is just like a who's who of amazing photos. And uh, thanks for sitting down, man. Yeah, man. You bet. Cheers. Appreciate it. That went really good, man. Thank you. Yeah. I could talk about that shit all day. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Peter Buckingham with original theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan. Logo design and branding by Italic at www.italic-studio.com. Sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. And you can check out my photography at justinj.com. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.